Welcome to the show today. I am talking to Megan from Neurodivergent Magic. We're talking all things diagnostics when it comes to autism and ADHD. She has some fantastic tools and resources. We're going to be talking about those. We're going to be talking about some of the challenges that we face when it comes to diagnostic process as an adult late in life. Hello. So stick around. Hi, I'm Carol Jean, founder and host of Mind Your Autistic Brain talk show and community. And you're about to experience the new way to thrive in life and relationships as a late identified autistic by unveiling who you are, how you communicate, finding your self-care plan from the inside out, and being the authentic creator of your best life. Get ready because this is where we go against the mainstream. Say no to outdated society norms. And we say yes to who we are in order to create a joy-filled, balanced, and more neurodistinct world. Welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain. So stick around. Welcome to the show, Megan. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So Megan, like we said before we hit record, I don't know that I can in- introduce you any better. I would love for you to share with people who you are, and what you do. Absolutely. So hi, everybody. My name is Megan. I'm a neurodivergent life coach, uh, meaning that I am neurodivergent myself and I coach my fellow neurodivergent people. And I specialize in executive dysfunction, high sensitivity and internalized shame. And I think we can all relate to those things. (laughs) Late identified life. Oh, my goodness. So Megan, I know that you have been on your own journey of identification and going through the process of just sort of figuring out what questions to ask yourself, what questions to ask potential service providers, what type of things, you know, you've encountered on this journey. I would love to know because that has been so significant in your life that you've created these two notebooks that people can order and that you have put together specifically for ADHD and autism diagnoses process. So tell us a little bit about this and sort of why this came about. What were some of the things that you were facing? Because I believe lots of us have faced those. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So I created um, an autism diagnosis binder and an ADHD diagnosis binder. And originally I had no intent of like making them for other people. They were just for me because I knew that I was neurodivergent, but I didn't know which box I fit into. But I suspected either ADHD or autism or potentially both would be on the table. And so I wanted to do as much research as I could to try to figure it out. And not to say like, you know, I'm not a diagnostician, Uh, you know, I can't um, do any of that, but there's a lot of self-assessments out there. There's a lot of studies out there. Um, And so I wanted to find them and take them and read them and try to figure some stuff out on my own um, because I hadn't had a lot of luck with uh, professionals taking me all that seriously. Oh, and that is one of the biggest roadblocks that so many of us face. I, 
I was very fortunate in the sense that number one, I was totally clueless. I was going through the diagnostic process with my son, the neuropsychologist who we had been seeing for several months going through this process with my son was just wise enough, had been in, in the world of autism long enough that he was able to say, Hey, you know, you were missed. And that was just like the most unexpected blessing in my life. And I know that it was when it came to getting my ADHD diagnosis in my mid late twenties, that wasn't the case. You know, I had gone through a lot of mislabels and a lot of therapists and clinicians and, you know, oh, she has this exceptionally high IQ, she's gifted. And so, you know, all of those things factor in and somehow the other things got missed. And I love what you're doing about putting things together to help people sort of, it's, I looked at it and I loved how you, how you wrote about it and had shared about it on TikTok and on, and on Instagram. It's just like, it's an empowerment binder really is how I was thinking about it. It's because it's like, here's some tools because you got to know you a little bit and here's some self-assessment things to think about. And, you know, here are these other aspects because it's not just about finding somebody else and having them tell you who you are, but it's also kind of figuring out and, and acknowledging who you are first. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Because I think, um, going in, I, I am sort of, uh, starting to seek professional diagnosis. I'm not sure I'll be able to afford it. Um, but I'm at least seeking professional validation, I suppose you could call it. Uh, that's um, a big word in our world. Looking for that validation. <laughs> I would love to have professionals just look at the binder and say like, yeah, all of this totally makes sense. Like it may, would make sense if you were autistic or if you have ADHD or anything like that. Um, and I actually got really lucky and I've been seeing a new therapist over the last like month or two. And I brought her my autism diagnosis binder. And I was like, I really want to go over this with you. Is that okay? And I was so nervous. She was going to be very dismissive or very, you know, judgmental. And she just wasn't, she was like, yeah, of course, this is your hour. We can play Uno for all I care. Like it's, what do you want to do with your hour? And I was like, I want to look at this binder together. And so we looked at it and she was just so affirming and so validating. And she was very clear that autism is not her area of specialty. So she didn't feel comfortable professionally diagnosing me or anything like that. But she, she was like, yeah, you definitely seem to meet a lot of the criteria, Megan. And I was like, <laughs> somebody else sees it. It's not just me and my string theory FBI board, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's exactly what it feels like. It does, doesn't it? Oh my goodness. And you know what? It, I, I love it because this is, I also just have a weird sense of humor. So here it is. How do you say you're autistic without saying you're autistic? I walked into my therapist office with my autism diagnosis binder. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like one of the more. I love it. <laughs> I love it. But what I really love is that you've taken something that has been your experience. And because you are a process structure thinker, so I mean, you're a neuro neurodivergent brain. You've put this together because, you know, when we're in the throes of it and it's normally, you know, cause my, my 
my specialty is talking about autistic burnout and solving and restoring people to stay out of the cycle burnout trap, to stay off that chronic cycle trap. And one of the biggest, most influential things when we come to a place where we are looking at for a diagnosis, for that validation, to figure out what the hell is going on. Like stuff just like got so bad that I feel like I'm losing my mind. I can't concentrate. I can't focus. Like everything is just too much right now. And it's scary and it's overwhelming and you're exhausted. You barely have the spoons to like get dressed or just do the have tos every day. And most of us come to that place of severe autistic burnout, and we don't really have the mental, emotional, or energy capacity to do this, to have these steps. But if they're there and we can look at a binder, we can go, okay, I'm going to take just step one today and or this week or this month, I do step one. <laughs> you know, that's what I got the spoons for. But it's something that's there that. I, in that burnout, am not going to necessarily be able to think about or articulate sometimes. And so, you know, you've sort of put this together. How would you say, like, do you feel like that maybe you were in a burnout that sort of led you to this? Um, I think it was a little bit of the opposite. So I wasn't in burnout when I made the binders because I wouldn't have been capable of making the right. in burnout. But I think I was coming out of a bit of a burnout. Like it was like, okay, I couldn't do anything for so long. And now I've got my energy back and I'm just going to devote it to this. This is the thing. Like this is my new special interest. Like psychology in general has been a special interest for me since high school, which has been a while now. <laughs> um, and it, I just got really focused on autism specifically. And I was like, I need to figure out if this is me and this is how I'm going to do it. How did, how did the awareness of autism and possibility of being autistic come into your world, Megan? Cause I know this is always such a, a big moment in our lives when we have that epiphany moment. And sometimes it's a subtle one. Sometimes it's not, it's not an epiphany. Sometimes it's just a gradual build, which was your, what was your experience? How did it come into your world? I think mine was more of a gradual build. I don't have one big memory where it was like, oh my gosh, of course. (laughs) I more have just a general sense that it, it kept building the more that I saw on, especially on TikTok and Instagram. And then seeing those things on TikTok and Instagram, I would do my own research. I would get books and articles and read those. And I would take some of the self-tests that are included in the binders. And I just, I think it started on TikTok and then it grew into something much more. (laughs) I love that because, you know, it's sometimes it's just those little breadcrumbs. And we just keep following the breadcrumb trail until we get to the loaf. Finally, (laughs) Hopefully there's a loaf left when we get there. (laughs) Yes. Well, I would love to talk a little bit about 
the coaching that you do as you focus on executive dysfunction, specifically for those of us who have their combined neurotype of autistic ADHD, because like I was late for this, which is really unusual. I am normally not late for things. And in the last week, this is the second time. And I was like, holy hell, what is going on? It is time to check some signposts in your, your, your life, Carol Jane. And I, what I have, and I love this. So I'm look, cause guys, this, this is where it gets real because I think it's a bunch of crap for somebody to get in front of you and say, Hey, I'm an expert in this. I'm good at this. And I'm perfect. I never make mistakes. That is not the person that's going to help you. Just saying. I don't tend to feel that those are the people that are going to help me. I want to know somebody that's like screwed up, that's lived it, that's been like in it, experience it and has some solutions. And one of those things is, you know, I have timers and I have things on my phone that are set that go off to say, okay, you got 15 minutes to finish hot rolling your hair, which is what I was doing. Finish hot rolling your hair to get your behind in the chair so you can talk to Megan. And it didn't go off. And so I'm listening to a podcast, hot rolling my hair in the bathroom. And all of a sudden, I get to the end of the podcast and I swipe up and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's past the time. (laughs) What happened (laughs) to my alarm? Because I was heavily relying on it to keep me on track because I know that I have time blindness. I know that when I'm curling my hair and listen to a podcast, it could be an hour later. So like coach me on this one, help me out on this one. What can we do? Like, how, how would you address this, Megan? I'm putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. You can say Carol Jane, no, (laughs) no, this is amazing. I love that idea. Okay. So first of all, I think relying on timers and whatnot is actually a really good idea. Um, the problem is they do fail. Um, (laughs) so point taken (laughs) twice. Yeah. (laughs) There are only as good as your technology that works for you. Right. No, that actually is such a good point. You, your performance, our performance relies on our accommodations to make sure that performance is what it needs to be. And if our accommodations don't successfully accommodate us, then um, we're going to struggle more. And so I think one of the big things is having backups. Um, So like having a general calendar, like for instance, what I tend to do is I have a calendar and I have it set to pop up a half hour before I get a notification saying, hey, you have a thing coming up. Um, What I also do though, is I check the calendar at the beginning of the day and I go through what I have to do. Um, And then I often will set another timer for like 10 minutes before. Because that's that's the answer for me. Ooh, okay. Cause I check my calendar. I I set the other one, but check, set another one. Ooh, you just solved my problem. Thank you. Holy crap. That's a good one. Now, here's the thing. If you find yourself setting like six or seven alarms, trying to remember stuff, then that's not working. And you've got no, that's not working strategy. Um, But if you find that one or two reminders is helpful, I think that's fine. It's just once we get up to six or seven, usually that means they're not working and you need a different strategy instead. Um, So maybe the fact that it's on your phone is way too much of a distraction and you need um, like a sticky note on wherever it is that you're going to be. Like, I know my parents used to leave us notes in the um, silverware drawer 
when they left for work in the morning because they knew we were going to eat breakfast before we left for school. So they would leave us a note in with the spoons <laughs> where we would eat oh, our cereal. Oh, I love that. That's a good one. Smart parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, and um, something that we talked about in our time boundaries workshop that really ties into that because it's like when you have six or seven timers and they're not working, there's a reason. And, you know, I know you love psychology. So one of the things that happens, because I have a watch that vibrates to make sure that I remember to drink and eat. And this is very helpful for me. But what happens, it's kind of like when you have a brand new car, nobody's eating in it, nobody's drinking in it, right? You want to keep your brand new car brand new. You want to keep everything great. Well, six months from now, you got French fries between the seats, half drunk sodas in the cup holders, and it doesn't matter, right? So that's something that, that, that is an example of what's called hedonic adaptation. So the same thing happens with timers. And that's why I was like, oh, that's so good. I'm going to set a separate timer that's not on my phone. And I'm going to do it when I check my calendar in the morning. I love that. That's really good because you can get into that. Oh, it went off. Okay. I'll be, I'll do it in a second and you dismiss it and it doesn't get your attention. And that's that hedonic adaptation over time. So, oh, Megan, genius coaching here. I love this. Coaching, coaching each other. This is good. Of course. Yeah. And that's the other thing that I do. I do not dismiss my calendar notification until I have done the thing. I don't dismiss it. It sits there and annoys me until the thing is done. (laughs) Because if I I know I let mine sit there too. (laughs) That's a good one. That is so good. So setting an external timer, those kind of things. So what are some of the biggest roadblocks or challenges that, that most of your clients are coming to you with when they're like, I am a walking poster child for executive dysfunction. Cause believe me, that was so me. <laughs> it has taken years of strategies and, and all kinds of things that have gotten me here. But, but what are the things that are people coming that people are coming to you with? And are like, this is my big challenge right now, Megan. Like, can you help me with this? I think the biggest thing is people come to me and they want practical solutions for practical problems. And that totally makes sense. But the problem is a lot of times those practical solutions don't stick because we haven't done the emotional work yet. And a lot of people have a lot of resistance around doing the emotional work because they're like, Megan, self-love sounds great, but like, it's not going to help me get my laundry done. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to argue with that a little bit and say it actually will completely and totally help you get your laundry done. Yes, amen. (laughs) Yes, because self-loathing, self-hatred, these, or even just, you know, self-flagellation, you know, like beating yourself up. These things require energy and focus and time. And when you stop doing them, you have more energy and focus and time to do things like the laundry. Yes, 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 yes. That is one of the things that I am constantly talking about and coaching in our, in our groups, especially coaching cafe Academy. That's one of the things that we we're talking about. That's one of the elements that we will, we speak on because, you know, we get in these thought loops, we get in these, what ifs we get in the, rumination of what has happened or what we perceive to have gone wrong. And we spend a tremendous amount of mental, emotional energy thinking about all these things that aren't serving us, that aren't 
giving us energy because energy is something that is exchanged. It isn't created. So either we give it away or we bring it in. And part of the, the rest is more than sleep is that there's seven other areas of rest. I mean, yeah, we need good sleep, but if these other areas aren't getting boxes, aren't getting ticked. And one of those things is, you know, self-compassion, self-love. And a lot of it, you know, I know you go into a lot of shame and, and that is such a huge part of late identified life in that we have these huge dump trucks full of shame. We have been carting around on our backs and that is exhausting. And you're in a chronic state of burnout and overwhelm and just executive dysfunction because you just don't have the energy because you're carrying around all of this stuff that's just not true for the most part. Absolutely. 100%. That's what's happening. So many people, they find the perfect practical solution and they're like, this is going to change everything for me. I am so excited. And they go to implement it and it works for a week and then they never do it again. And it just adds to the pile of what they perceive as failures, right? It's like, well, look, I found the perfect solution. And even that didn't work for me. The problem must be me. It must be who I am. I am just broken. Like that. We're going to take just a quick break so that Megan and I can share something really amazing and super exciting with you guys. Megan has put together resources for neurodivergent adults, finally, and I contributed to this and I'm so excited because there were lots of us who are neurodivergent coaches who came together to share some of our paid resources for free with you for just a small window of time. And that will be from March 21st through March 28th. So if you're tired of looking for resources to help yourself as a neurodivergent adult and pretty much exclusively finding resources designed for parents of neurodivergent kids, we totally get it. That's why we all teamed up and came together with some of the best and most innovative neurodivergent creators on the internet to provide you with a whole host of completely free resources. Don't miss out. Make sure you get on the wait list. Use the link in the show notes below. The course is called the Big Beautiful Brain Bundle. And I love that Megan came up with that name. She's so creative. That's her ADHD entrepreneurial brain in creative mode. Isn't it great? So there's a course on executive dysfunction, an ADHD bundle for beginners, a workshop all about how to schedule breaks. When's the last time you took a break? A neurodivergent entrepreneurial toolkit, video course that I created on sharing that you are autistic, and of course, the amazing task initiation webinar. Oh, I think those of us who have been in stuck mode love that idea. And Megan's get done masterclass. I don't have one of those cool trick buttons. So I had to make my own noise for the, for the essay part. Don't you love me? I'm really, I scare myself sometimes guys. Anyway, back to the show. Broken. Like that's the overall narrative that so many of us carry with us, especially when we're late diagnosed or undiagnosed. And um, it's, 
it's just not true. <laughs> the truth is that there is a lifetime of shame that you're carrying around that is preventing you from seeing yourself accurately. And um, when you start to combat this shame, this internalized shame, and when you start to learn about self-compassion, you're going to be amazed at how much more productive you also are. <laughs> Well, it shifts. And, you know, one of the things, one of the elements of the communication ecosystem that we use in our our academy is that we do what we value. We set boundaries around things that we value. And for most of us, we know what we need. You know, we know what we value. You know, we're very just-minded individuals. But when it comes to what do we value for ourselves and our own lives? And then setting those boundaries around those things and then holding space for it, it goes back to, do I believe I deserve it? Because, you know, sometimes the, just to go back to the laundry, it's, it's these unconscious beliefs that we carry. It's like, I need to get the laundry done. I need to have clean clothes, but somewhere it's like, do I really deserve clean clothes? I haven't earned it this week. I haven't done enough to really love myself enough to have some clean clothes. And that's not stuff that we say out loud. That's not even stuff we consciously think, but somewhere, mm-hmm. somehow, some, some experience or some in, interaction along the way said, you don't deserve nice things. You don't deserve to have clean clothes, you know, or who says you should do that? You know, who says that you should have that? Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, you know, really, when I start to love myself, then, you know, I deserve clean clothes. I deserve to feel good in clothes that make me feel good and throw away the ones that feel horrible and are itchy or just uncomfortable, right? But it's, those are the resistance points because those are seriously uncomfortable. And the scary part, a lot of times in late identified life is, okay, maybe I feel that way. Maybe I do feel like I don't deserve to have nice things, or maybe I do deserve to, to suffer somehow. I believed that. And I know now that that's not, that's wrong. You know, that I'm not broken and I don't deserve to suffer every day of my life because I just think differently, but it's, if I look at it and if I really honestly bring that belief into the light of day and start to observe it and question, is this really true? A lot of times that scary unspoken fear is that what if it is true? What if I am not, what if I don't deserve it? What if, what if I discover that maybe I am a horrible person? And I mean, you know, those are honest fears people carry. I mean, when it comes to shame, it's like shame is just simply not believing you deserve to be loved. That's shame. So when we have those fears that we're even afraid to acknowledge that, well, what if that, what if it's really true? What if I'm looking at it? I know that this is what I'm believing and that's why I'm feeling this way, but now I'm scared to look at it because what if it's true? What would you, what do you say about that? Here's something that has helped me a lot because I get stuck in that spiral of how do I know what's true about me? I don't feel like I know 
who I am. And therefore I could be a horrible monster in some people's eyes and I could be a saint in other people's eyes. And what is the truth? Uh, How do you find out what the truth is? And I have just gone down that spiral so many times and it is exhausting and terrible. And I have realized that it's not helpful. Like trying to figure out if I'm a good or a bad person is not helpful. (laughs) Um, and instead I have started framing things in those terms, whether it's helpful or not helpful instead of, is it true or untrue? Because truth is a really funny thing and it can get easily warped by, uh, trauma, like a trauma-based mindset, which many, many late diagnosed and even early diagnosed neurodivergent folks tend to have because the world was not built with neurodivergent folks in mind. Um, And so a lot of us are very traumatized. And when the brain and body are traumatized, um, it's constantly seeking out and looking for danger, looking for things that could be bad. It completely warps your worldview. And so you become somewhat of an unreliable narrator of your own life, and it makes you not trust yourself. And so if you're constantly searching for truth, you are going to go down a horrible rabbit hole that you, it's going to take a lot of work to emerge from. Um, And I think part of that work of emerging is recognizing that there are many, many truths, some of them more valid than others. And there, there is, you know, what is it called? The noblest pursuit or whatever. It is a noble pursuit to pursue the truth, but at the same time, you have to live your life and doing so requires you to ask instead, instead of, is this true? You ask, is this helpful? Because, and this is a really great example that my coach uses all the time. So I have a a coach as well. And she says, every time you get in the car, there is a good chance you could get hit. That's true. But is it helpful to think about it 24 seven? No, goodness, no, it's not helpful at all. It's totally distracting and could make it more likely that you're gonna get hit because you're distracted. And so, and, and distracted and freaking out. And so it's not that truth doesn't matter. It does matter profoundly, but also <laughs> in addition to truth, there is also what helps you, what benefits you and how can you get more of that in your life? Yes, ma'am. It is. You know, that's what I ask in, in my life is, does this serve me? Mm-hmm. Is it true for me? And that really is, I guess, one of the things that, that I learned was that truth is subjective. It tr- I mean, for the most part, truth is subjective because we each view truth with our own lens. And what's true for me could be vastly untrue for another person. And one of the, one of the biggest changes in, in how I live my life and maybe, and I'd love to know sort of what your thoughts on this are, Megan, is I simply started to look at I have choice. I didn't embrace that or even know that that was an option for the majority of my life. 40 plus years, I thought what my parents and what adults and other peers that seemed to have their stuff together did and said was what was true and what I was supposed to be doing. 
So essentially, I wasn't making any choices. I was just living by default in survival mode. And when I began to see that just because that was true for them, it didn't make it true for me. And does it serve me? Is it helping me? Is it moving me forward in the way that my life, I intend my life to go? And I started to choose and make choices of yes or no, or even maybe. Maybe it's one that a lot of times we forget, you know, we have a hard yes or hard no, but you know, there's those maybes in there too, because who I am in this moment, isn't who I'm going to be 10 minutes from now. And maybe I might do it in 10 minutes, but I'm not going to do it right now. (laughs) What are your thoughts on, on just that shift of not necessarily true versus not true? Cause I love how you're looking at helpful versus not helpful, but what about choice? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So (laughs) I completely relate to this idea of like not having, or at least feeling like I didn't have agency for a long time. Um, And I think I could be completely wrong about this. This is a bit of a spitball theory. So bear with me. Um, I think it might be part of the autistic experience, just almost naively trusting others that when they say something and that it's true and not always realizing that someone's stating an opinion rather than stating a fact that's something I've struggled with so much. (laughs) I just assumed that authority figures were telling me the absolute truth, not their version of it or their understanding of the world or their opinion. I thought they're an authority figure. They're right. I don't know. Why would they tell me something that's not true that would hurt me? Why would they do that? Right? I mean, you never even think that you think, this person said this, it's true. They're trying to help me. This is what's right. I do this. And that I totally agree with you on that one. Oh my gosh, you're spitballing in the right place. (laughs) Yeah. And so I completely understand. And as a result of that, you don't feel like you have a lot of agency because everyone around you is telling you how the world is and what you should do. And so there's not a lot of room for you to come up with your own theories, because even if you disagree, it feels like there's no, no room for disagreement because people we're not talking about opinions. We're talking about facts and you can't disagree with a fact that doesn't make sense. Um, So yeah, I think for a really long time, I felt like I had no agency over my life. This was a really big sticking point in my relationship at the time um, my then boyfriend, now husband was saying, you know, like, it's, it's like, you think life just happens to you, but it doesn't, you're making choices along the way, whether you realize it or not. And I was like, Oh, what, (laughs) what do you mean? (laughs) I'm just doing my best to be who I'm supposed to be. And he's like, yeah, but that's also a choice. And you're allowed to make a different one. And that blew my freaking mind. (laughs) I'm telling you. When Jim shared that, one of my coaches, one of my mentors, I was just like, holy cow, what? And then you're just, it, it just, then you start taking stock of the decades that you have capitulated for less for, you know, for lack of any other term to put with that, just essentially survived and capitulated to the, to the that people in who are influences in your life. And you're just like, holy crud. I could have made a million different choices. And then of course there's a rabbit hole that sucks you down there. <laughs> and you are nodding because you know what I mean. 
Oh yeah. But it's, but you know, and that's kind of part of the process. And, and that's also a choice of how far you go down that rabbit hole. I mean, part of the processing of, of coming out of it is, is going down the rabbit hole. Well, what choices could I have made that I didn't know I could in certain aspects of my life, you know, big ones usually. And, and then it's also, okay, I acknowledge that there were other options and I wasn't unaware that I had a choice in this it didn't go well. That's what it is. I am who I am today because of it. What did I learn from it? And now that I know I have choice, now that I know I have authority, now that I am empowered in my own life for the first time, how am I now going to make a different choice or a choice that is informed from what serves me? Yeah, no, exactly. It's what serves me, what is helpful and who am I? (laughs) And realizing that that answer of who am I is formed through choices and you become who you are. It's not like you're trying to uncover, like you were born this one person and then you learned to hide that person and now you have to discover them again. Like to a certain extent, that's true. But honestly, I have just found it's more helpful to think of my building myself as I go. I love that. Cause you know, it's, that's one of the things that I talk about a lot. It's just, we have not just masked, we have taken masking to, to the professional world of camouflaging for yeah. decades. And through that, we've lost our authentic identity because we've suppressed it. And the gift in late identified life is that we get to now craft with intention and choose who we are because who we are is here. It's already there. It hasn't gone away. It's been there the whole time. And then there's also whole new aspects of us that we haven't even discovered yet. And that's, that really is the gift. That's the joy. That's the excitement. That's the thrill because If you look at most people's lives, they do not get this beautiful gift because one day you're living your life and all of a sudden one piece of information changes everything about who you thought you were and it's, you're autistic. And that beautiful gift gives us things that we never had before that we were aware of. We had them, we just didn't know it. <laughs> they, were, they were there, we just didn't know it because people don't talk about these types of things in everyday life, in our regular world. Everybody's just scrapping it out, knuckling down and doing what they think they're supposed to be doing. And we have this beautiful gift that, you know, instead of on our deathbed, someone asks, you know, what do you regret in life? Well, it's, it's not, it's not that I didn't choose who I'm going to be because we have this awareness that no one else gets and we get to choose all of the things in our life moving forward. And instead of what did I not do? What do I regret? It's, I know who I am. I discovered who I am. I lived an authentic thriving life on my terms by choice, not by default. And I created relationships with deep and authentic connection 
that even if it's just a handful, that is more than most people ever get. That for yeah. me is, is the goal. <laughs> I think late diagnosis is a form of disruption through connection. So it disrupts our like natural automatic do what I'm supposed to sort of programming. It disrupts that through connecting to something that has always been true. We just didn't have the language for it until now. And so being able to connect to ourselves gives us the ability to disrupt what is very normal in our culture. Like you were talking about living very unintentionally and, um, not being aware of who you are and not making active choices about who you are. And, and I think plenty of uh, neurotypical people live very intentionally, but I think our culture definitely promotes um, obedience and compliance and uh, productivity above all else. And that can lead to a lack of self-awareness to a certain extent. And I do think when you go through this late diagnosis process, it's really hard not to become more self-aware and to start making more active choices about who you are. So as we're wrapping up, Megan, I would love to know what your number one insight or piece of advice from your experience going forward, because getting an identification can be so validating and it can be something that not everyone can access and it's not something everyone can afford. And I love that your binders that you put together also put together some self-identification steps in there. What's the one thing if someone is, is listening to the show today and they're like, you know, I know in my heart, in my soul, in my every cellular part of my body down to the nth degree, I know, but I haven't had external validation. And I kind of feel like I need that. Like I'm not yet trusting myself because that's a big part of, of late identified as life is just not really trusting ourselves and needing that external thing. What, what is it you, you think would be the most helpful first step in this direction? Okay, so I have a couple of different thoughts on this because I think they're all important. So first of all, I want to say that self-diagnosis is valid, um, especially due to the accessibility barriers, the money barriers, the time barriers, the insurance barriers. Those are all incredibly real. And because of that self-diagnosis, it's okay for you to say, I am autistic, period, the end. But also, (laughs) I do understand what you're saying, Carol Jean, about this, like, lack of self-trust that comes from living your whole life by other people's standards and not knowing this about yourself your whole life and feeling uncertain about making this kind of claim all on your own, like that can be really scary. And I also don't want to say like that professional diagnosis isn't worth anything either, because it absolutely is. Um, Having a professional who has studied this and someone who knows what they're talking about and doesn't have super ableist views of autism. It's a very important caveat. um, having (laughs) Having their opinion can really help make sure that you are identifying with the most accurate label, um, because as someone who's been through misdiagnosis, it can really mess you up. Um, it can. And so I would hate for that to happen due to the self-diagnosis journey, but honestly, honestly, most people who self-diagnose are correct. Um, let's just be fair. Let's be honest here. (laughs) Yep. Um, (laughs) You don't usually dive in 
to everything that is being autistic and go down the rabbit hole and do the research and do all the stuff and, and sitting on the other side of your screen, nodding your head going, oh my God, that's me. And then it's not you. It's, that is just usually not the case because if that's you, you usually are, you usually, your instincts are spot on. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to say that professional diagnosis is important. Um, Self-diagnosis is also valid. Um, And the big thing I want you to take away from this uh, conversation is that your autism isn't about other people. Oh, say that again. (laughs) Your autism isn't about other people. This is something that my husband and I just had a really powerful conversation about a couple of weeks ago because I was saying, well, I'm so scared to like self-identify or self-diagnose because what if, you know, X, Y, Z, what if this person thinks this or what if this person thinks that? And he was like, why are you making your diagnosis about them? And I was like, because I need their validation. (laughs) And he's like, but what if you don't? What if you didn't though? And that's been really powerful for me. So I hope it's powerful for you as well. Oh, I love that so much. Your husband is such a smart man. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm lucky. I love, Josh, Josh does those things for me. Sometimes he's just like, Carol Jean, really? Let's think about this for a second. I'm just like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking the good question. And it's not that they tell us anything. It's the question they ask us. And that's mm-hmm. the brilliant thing about coaching is that it's about, it's not about the questions. It's the quality of the question that we ask. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, oh, I love that so much because look, guys, this, this is the thing. There are huge debates and you're going to hear people up in arms on both sides of the table on this one. Self-diagnosis versus, you know, medical formal quote unquote diagnosis. Now, number one, it's an identification because a diagnosis is a medical deficit model in our world. So that's a load of who we to start with. <laughs> we have <laughs> traits, not symptoms. We are not a disease, <laughs> but it's, it's really I think, Megan, what you said is just so powerful and it's really so important. And God, if, if you're listening, if you're watching today and your heart needed this, cause it's really your heart that needs it. It's your heart that needs to hear it. It's your, it's your inner soulful self that really needs to know this. Your autism, your identification as to who you are in this world, isn't about anybody else. Thank you for that beautiful gift, Megan. So if someone is starting to go through the process and the, in the journey of identifying who they are and where they might fall in the neurodivergent world of being, you know, anything under that umbrella, and they want to access your beautiful diagnosis, identification binders, and the process to go through for ADHD and autism and just have some guidance and a little framework and outline to work with. How can they get that? Oh, uh, yeah. You can get access to the binders by going to neurodivergentmagic.com slash the dash neurodivergent dash magic dash shop. Fantastic. And we're going to have a link in the show notes below. So you guys can go check that out take a look, see if this is something that is going to serve and help you on your journey, because 
your journey is about you. It's not about anybody else. And if Megan and I can any way can help you and get you started on your journey today, we want to do that. Thank you for being here, Megan, from Neurodivergent Magic. People can find you on which platforms? Um, I spend most of my time on TikTok at Meg Moxie, uh, but I'm also on Instagram at neurodivergent underscore magic. Fantastic. So guys, go check out Megan, her neurodivergent channel on Instagram and on TikTok. And we are so glad that you were here with us today for this conversation. And be sure to check the questions and the polls in the Spotify uh, platform for engagement because we want to have a conversation with you, not at you. <laughs> we want to know what you think. What are your experiences? This is all about Mind Your Autistic Brain is all about community and connection and sharing our unique voices together. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye. Bye bye. If you are someone who likes to help people and share what has made a difference in your life, please share this talk show with a friend and on your social media accounts so that you can be the blessing in another late-identified autistic's life. Be sure to tag me at Social Audi so I can personally say thank you. And to help keep the talk show ad-free, please consider becoming a one-time or recurring supporter through either Buy Me a Coffee or the Anchor Podcast links in the show notes below. I truly appreciate your support. Thank you for being a listener, and thank you for adding your voice to our story.